the price candle just a little bit so it doesn't burn my computer. There we go. Thank you, Shell, and thank you, Graham and worship team, for leading us in that, that worship time. I think we all needed to hear those words, be still and know that I am God in this time. Amen. We find comfort and refuge in, in knowing that and leaning into that truth this morning. So it's really good to be with you all here, present in the body um, this morning, and everyone's doing okay? Yeah, all things considered, we're doing good? All right. Um, I, had a, I have a friend who wrote a song about how he wished that God would just write him an email from time to time um, with what he wanted me to preach about. It doesn't really work that way, so um, when Shell asked me if I wanted to preach, I, I was going to jump into the... the Second Corinthians series, and I thought, oh, this is a cool passage, but something happened uh, during our first discipleship uh, session, and I'm only going to do this once. I don't want this to be like a commercial for the discipleship course, so I'll just get it out of the way right now. Um, during our first session, we, we were discussing a few things, and one of those things was, what's the difference between the old and the new covenant, and pictures of God, and how that changes and, and moves around in the narrative of scripture. And those who have taken the course already know that's a big thing throughout the whole course. And today I want to address one of those things, maybe uh, expand, explore that a little bit more with everyone here. Um, this is not a plug for the discipleship course, although if you are thinking of joining, you should. We have a solid group of 10 people, which works for me, I think works for good discussion time, and it's great, but we don't want anyone to be left behind. So if you are here and you're thinking about it, um, if you're watching online and are thinking about it, please do consider joining us uh, next Saturday. We have seven more sessions spread out in six Sundays, Saturdays, sorry. Saturday from 9.30 to 11, you are more than welcome to join us. So yes, that's done, out of the way, commercial over. Let's jump into the scripture reading for this morning. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. And I'll invite you to stand if you are able to do that as we center our hearts and open up to scripture. Scripture says, now the main point of what we are trying to say is this. We have this kind of high priest. He sat down at the right center of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's serving as a priest in the holy place, which is the true meeting tent that God, not any human being set up Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, so it's necessary for the high priest also to have something to offer. If he was located on earth, he wouldn't be a priest because there are already others who offer gifts based on the law. They serve in a place that is a copy and a shadow of the heavenly meeting tent. This is indicated when Moses was warned by God when he, saw, when he was about to set up the meeting tent. See that you follow the pattern that I showed you on the mountain in every detail. But now... Jesus has received a superior priestly service just as he arranged a better covenant that is enacted with better promises. If the first covenant had been without fault, it wouldn't have made sense to expect a second. But God did find fault with them since he says, and this is from Jeremiah, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue to keep my covenant and I lost interest in them, says the Lord. This is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will place my laws in their mind 
and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person won't ever teach a neighbor or their brother or their sister, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least important of them to the most important, because I will be lenient toward their unjust actions, and I won't remember their sins anymore. When it says new, it makes the first obsolete. And if something is old and outdated, it's close to disappearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So before we unpack that, I want to begin this message by telling a story. And it's a story that was told to me back when I was a kid, probably six or seven years old. It's hard to know uh, how old I was in the pre-Facebook era or age because I can't just look at my memories, so I have to guess. And my guess is that I was something like around six years old. I was going to Sunday school, really into it at the time. Uh, I was also going through a mighty duck's face, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, I was really into hockey when I was six years old, and I felt very misunderstood living in Mexico, where everyone spoke <laughs> soccer, and we never got any snow. It was a difficult time in my life, but I'm, I'm not making this up. It's, it's real. I had hockey sticks. Like, my dad would travel to the U.S. and bring back, like, hockey sticks um, <laughs> that I could never got to use because there was no ice rink. So you can imagine how lonely I felt, but... But I got over it when I was seven, seven and a half. Um, and I, 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 you know, the phase didn't stick with me. But this story that I'm about to tell you, that stuck with me for a number of years. And I feel that in many ways it informed my faith and my basic understanding of who God was and what I thought Christianity and scripture was all about. Not sure how many, how familiar you guys may or may not be with this story. I may be completely butchering it. So if anyone actually knows it well, please come and tell me, because I googled and I couldn't find anything. But it's a story called The Story of the Savior and the Judge. And the story begins with these, these two men. They were, I guess, in college. And they were really good friends, the type of friend that, that you're really close to, that you trust, you kind of grow up with, kind of like a brother or a cousin. Um, they shared life together, and, and they were really close. And one, one day, they went out to swim. Um, they went out for a swim at a lake. And this is where it started getting weird, but this is how I remember the story. Um, they were out swimming, and one of them started to drown. I guess he couldn't swim that well. And the other friend, he saw that his friend was drowning, so when he realized that you know, it was bad, he set out to rescue him. And it took him a while to get him out of the water. When he finally did, his friend was unconscious, so they did like the whole CPR thing, brought him back. Um, and it was, it was a close one, but you know, he pulled through, he made him, bottom line, he saved his friend from drowning at a lake. Now many years go by, Probably like 20 odd something years go by. And the friend, the one who had almost drowned, um, he finds himself in serious trouble. Um, different life choices had led him down the wrong path. And he ended up facing serious charges and serious prison time. And he gets a hearing uh, date to appear before court. And when the day comes, he walks in, he looks at the judge, and here's a kicker, it's his friend. The guy who's judging him is this kind of like old friend who had saved him and 
Many years have passed, they've lost touch, but now he encounters his friend, and this guy, he looks up, he sees like, his friend, and he just starts crying and bawling. He's like, what's going on? And the judge doesn't really show any emotion. He just looks at him and stares. And this guy, he, like he's going through the motions, trying to contain himself. He looks, and he, he looks at the judge, and he screams. He said, hey, do you, know, do you know who I am? Do you remember me? I'm your friend. I'm the one you saved that day on the lake. Do you remember me? And, and the judge looks down on him with a very serious tone and says, yes, I, I remember you. I remember that day when I saved you. And it really hurts to see you here, but you know, under the circumstances. But you see, back then I was your savior, but today I'm your judge. And the way that I remember this in my mind, there's sound effects. It, it's, it ends with like, I'm your judge, 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 judge. Um, and that's the end of the story. And I guess I turned out all right. <laughs> the trauma only lasted like 15 years or something. It's been a minute since I've thought about the story, so I really, I tried to steer away from it when I was writing this message, but I had no choice. I needed to analyze it and try to think about where, where did that come from? Why did they tell me that? Now, it's an interesting story, I'll tell you that. Probably not the best story to tell a group of six years old, but, you know, it was the 90s. Maybe they were following this curriculum, like fire and brimstone for kids. Kids, <laughs> kids with a set, because it's the 90s. Um, and I'm sure the person who told us this story, like, you know, their heart was probably in the right place. They were showing up early. They were volunteering to help with kids in a big church. I don't want to sound angry or ungrateful or like upset. Um, and I'm not really interested in unpacking the story. That, that, that's maybe for another sermon. What, what I want to talk about is how that story was explained to me. Because you see, there's a few things that are kind of obvious about the story. It, it definitely sounds like one of those Jesus parables taken out of context. Um, it sounds American, sorry Shell, we have no lakes in Mexico, so like there's no swimmable lakes in our hometown, so like starting from there, it just sounded like, no, this is not, anyways, um, what I'm interested in today is unpacking a little bit of how that was explained to me when, you know, it definitely caught our attention and we asked, well, can you explain that story, what does that mean? So. The way it was explained to us, the teacher said something along the lines of, well, you see, Jesus, he saved you. Um, the Jesus that you hear stories about, the one who heals the sick, who cares for the poor, who lets the children come to him, that Jesus, he's your savior. And right now, we're living in that time of grace. We're living in that era of salvation. But one day, Jesus is going to show up again. And he's going to switch back to the way things used to be in the Old Testament. And if you make bad choices and continue disobeying your Sunday school teacher and keep playing with that Game Boy, Andres, one day you're going to encounter Jesus as the judge. You're not going to find Jesus as the Savior. You're going to find Jesus as the judge. And I know that sounds a bit over the top. And some of you may be thinking like, oh, I completely relate. Some of you may be saying, well, what kind of church did you grow up in, man? Um, this was an odd Sunday off. Like, that's the way selective memory works, right? Those are the ones who st that stick. It wasn't every Sunday like this. But, but I remember this story, and it kind of became a thing. And I kept going back to it as I was uh, older. And, you know, there's a place to talk about judgment. 
We sang about justice today. We sang about God being just. And maybe one day we can do a sermon on that or probably that shell walk into that trap and I'll just pick the songs for that one. But the thing is when ancient Christians talk about divine judgment, historically we, we have documents, we have tradition, we have enough to understand that they were very careful to avoid the impression that there were two different kinds of gods, that there was a God of wrath and a God of grace. And Benjamin Meyer, Myers nails it when he says that this particular line of separation between God as this and God as that could lead into the theological nightmare of Gnosticism back in the day. For Christians, historically speaking, there should be no division within God. When Christians all around the world confess and affirm their faith like we did this morning, saying, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is not meant to be an expression of terror or doom. It's not meant to sound scary. It's meant to be a part of the good news of the gospel, that confession that Christ will come as a judge should bring about joy, because it means that the one who truly understands all the complexities, all the ambiguities of our lives, the one who is truly competent to judge, who is also described as full of grace and full of truth, comes not to destroy, but to save. He saves us by his judgment. Myers continues by saying that when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, that will be the best thing that ever happens to us. Because the pain of truth, while it may momentarily hurt, is about healing. He's not set out to destroy. On the judgment day, we will be able to see the truth for the first time in our lives, and that truth is that we are loved in the infinite love of Jesus. And that's a beautiful picture. And I wish, uh, I wish that was the explanation that I had gotten. But, uh, you know, I'd be like, oh, well, that's what the story's about. Cool. I can go about my life now without feeling that one day I'm going to face the judge. But that was not what happened. And, and the toxic image of God lingered on. Now, we were talking about the discipleship group. We we're talking about that last Sunday. And Jenny, who's not here right now, she might be online. Jenny, you made it to the sermon. Um, <laughs> Jenny showed me this meme. And uh, I'm not going to show the meme because, you know, heresy. But... It's, it's a meme that the, the template is the, it's Angry Hulk and Happy Hulk, or I guess the Incredible Hulk and the Credible Hulk. And uh, the Incredible Hulk, it's Hulk and he's angry and he's like, Rah! and the Credible Hulk, he's kind of wearing glasses and he's very like, you know, contained and collected and he's kind of smiling. And it usually has like a very generic text, like, when you can't find your keys and it's angry hulk and then it says when you realize that you had them in your pocket and then it's happy hulk or like credible hulk right but the meme that jenny showed me it was the incredible angry hulk and it said old testament god and then it had the collected calm credible <laughs> happy hulk and it said new testament god and she she showed it to me and we we're just talking about it and kind of like expanding and that's where the message kind of came about now this is nothing new it's actually kind of the premise or one of the main premises for the whole new atheist critique, taking passages from the Old Testament, particularly those where there are violent depictions of God, use them to disqualify the whole thing and completely take Jesus out of the equation and things just kind of spiral from there. The thing is, I don't think this line of thinking is exclusive to new, new atheists or this one off Sunday school teacher who maybe had a bad morning. I think many of us are wrestling trying to understand what do we do with this whole chunk of scripture that says this one thing and has all these images of God 
And how do we connect that or relate that to the revelation that we find in the Gospels and in Jesus? And so we come to the title of this message today, The Old and the New. Now, the scripture that we read a few minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, that was a long intro. I'm sorry, I'm going to try to get it done. Um, Starting on verse 6, it says that Jesus has received a superior priestly service as he arranged for a better covenant filled with better promises. And the author of Hebrew continues, he writes, if the first covenant had been without fault, it wouldn't have made sense to expect a second. But God did find fault with it. And therefore, he goes into this quote, which is actually the longest standing Old Testament quote in the New Testament. It's Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, in full. And he says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with your ancestors. This time, I will put the laws in your minds and write them in your hearts. I will be your God, you will be my people. No longer will they say to each other, do you know who God is? He says, you will all know me. From the least to the greatest, because I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. And it's a beautiful foreshadowing of what was to come, of the revelation in Jesus. The reading concludes by calling this covenant new. He makes the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete is outdated and will soon disappear. And this passage, it's groundbreaking. And really, the whole book of Hebrews is kind of crazy and and life-changing in many ways. Uh, One day, maybe we'll do a series on it. But understanding that shift, understanding the cosmic shift from the old to the new is a game-changer in your life and in my life and in the life of the church. Some helpful language to understand what we're talking about is to talk about the old covenant as a pre-Jesus way. It was a life that involved a lot of law-keeping and religious rituals and consequently a sacrifice-making kind of life. And it was all these laws and it was all these rules and we were always falling short. The new covenant can be defined as the Jesus way. We no longer relate to God through laws and sacrifices. We no longer long to know God. God has made himself known to us through the person of Jesus Christ, who is a true human being, who invites us into this deep, intimate relationship with him through community, allowing us to experience that union, that eternal life here on earth. We no longer have to climb the mountain of religion. God has come down from the mountain, reveals himself to us. He says, hello, my name is Jesus. This is what God is like. Throughout the whole of the New Testament, we find what Greg Boyd defines as an intense Christocentricity or Jesus-centeredness. But nowhere in the New Testament is it as clear or as clearly illustrated as in the book of Hebrews. Throughout the whole book, we find this repeated emphasis on the many ways that the revelation given to us in Christ surpasses that given to us in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews begins by stressing how the revelation of God in his own son in Jesus contrasts and surpasses all of the previous revelations found in the Old Testament due to the fact that Jesus alone, and this is Hebrews 1.3, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his likeness. The The first 10 chapters of Hebrews are all structured around this idea that Christ is superior to angels, to Moses, to the Aaronic priesthood, to the high priest and their sacrifices. 
And again, while the book of Hebrews is a very clear example of this, this Christocentricity, this Jesus-centered, it is a recurring theme among the New Testament writers. Brian Sand argues the following. He says, what the Bible does infallibly, what scripture does without failure, is point us to Jesus. The Bible itself is not a perfect picture of God, but it does point us to the one who is. And this is what Orthodox Christianity has always said. The Bible itself is on a quest to discover the word of God. And what we find in the Old Testament is a progression of that revelation. You've heard it said on this pulpit before. We'll say it again and we'll remind you that we said it. We do not worship the Bible. We worship the one whose scriptures point to. We worship the one that the Bible reveals. And that is, without question, the person revealed in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, the new, this new covenant, this relationship between the old and the new. The new covenant was not this plan B. It was not this consequence of an emergency. It, it, it didn't happen because things just went south. You know, God never said to himself, oh no, we need a new covenant. Jesus, come here, rub the angels in. Let's do a brainstorming meeting. Let's create a Google Doc and share it with all the team. And Jesus said, what do I call the Google Doc? And God said, I don't know, like untitled, one, or new document, one. And Jesus said, well, that's generic. And that did not happen. They never had that meeting. The new covenant was not a solution to an unforeseen problem. In fact, the old covenant was actually designed to lead us into this newness, into this new covenant. Michael Heiser rightly argues, a new covenant was needed, not because God goofed up the old one, but because the people failed to obey its terms. And frankly, they couldn't obey its terms perfectly. The Torah system was, as Paul put it, designed to direct us to a savior by showing we needed a savior. Not a judge, a savior. The Old Testament law was a foreshadowing of the good things that were to call in the new covenant. The Mosaic tabernacle was a foreshadowing of the true tabernacle, which was the presence of Jesus dwelling among us. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And in the Greek, in the original, it says, he set his tabernacle in our midst. And now we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Christ. And verse 18 says, and listen to this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. And there's that pattern emerging. And if we look close enough, if we ask the Spirit to speak to us and reveal Jesus to us as we read Scripture alone and in community, we begin to realize that only through Jesus, whom the Old Testament is pointing to at all times, can we begin to approach human completeness and wholeness. So let's talk about the promise of the new covenant. Everyone's with me? You guys with me? As a way, turn to your neighbor, don't say anything, just stare at him awkwardly for a few seconds. And stand there. I love how N.T. Wright phrases this in his commentary of Hebrews. He writes, this was good. And he's referring to the old, the pre-Jesus way, the old covenant. Wright argues, this was good. But what God is doing is better. 
Jesus is revealed to us as a truly human being, and only he can offer us true rest. Psalm 95 talks about the generation that wandered around the desert for 40 years, who failed to live up to the expectations and requirements of a religious system that attempted to reach God, but failed constantly. It was that generation who heard the words, you shall never enter my rest. But now Jesus reveals himself to us. He wanders the desert. He finds us. He offers true rest and true healing. The old covenant says, you shall never enter my rest. The new covenant says, come all you weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So how does this happen? How does God, quote unquote, change? Is the Old Testament God the incredible Hulk and the New Testament God the credible Hulk? How does it work? And nope, it doesn't work that way. God does not change. And I want to stress this because I think it's important. This is not happening by accident. It's not happening by chance. Brad Jerzak writes, there is an obvious intended trajectory of revelation from the old covenant to the new. To the new. In other words, God did not evolve. Our conception of him did. In greatest part, because Jesus came to show us and tell us exactly who God is in a way that no prophet had the capacity to anticipate, not Moses, not David, or even Isaiah. But in order to see this, we need the Holy Spirit to lead us to Christ. We need that Christological hermeneutic, that spiritual reading of scripture that allows us and enables us to walk into that life of the new covenant. And the thing is, if we don't do that, if we throw Jesus out of the picture, if we forget that everything is hinging in the life and person of Christ, it's very easy to fall into this practice. And historically, we've done this. Time and time again, we've fallen into this practice where we just piece together a picture of a mostly malicious God by selecting the most gruesome passages of the Old Testament. And then we have people writing books and showing up on TV and saying, this God is so angry and vengeful. I don't believe in this God is worthy of worship. Well, guess what? We don't either. That's not the point. Brian Sand argues that when we approach scripture by trying to proofread an angry God, sometimes our interpretation of the text reveals more about ourselves than it does about who God is. I'll say that again. Sometimes our interpretation of the text reveals more about ourselves than it does about who God is. And it's so easy to fall into this while completely ignoring the fact that the Old Testament, to begin with, doesn't give us just one portrait of God. It gives us many, and that's okay. But it's impossible to make a univocal claim of the picture of God that the Old Testament is painting. There's a chorus of voices. They're not always in perfect harmony. It doesn't take a long time to figure that out. You have Proverbs and you have Job. And Proverbs says, if you fear God and do what's, do what's right, good things will happen to you. And there's truth in that. And Job says, that's not the whole the story. He tells about this tragic tale, and he tells about how sometimes tragic things happen to good people. And that's also true. Does God require animal sacrifice? The priests and the Levites say yes. That's what we find in the Torah. There's books literally just dedicated to that. Chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters. If you're, ever, if, you, if you're ever done this, I want to read the Bible in one year, those are the hardest to get through, right? 
That's where we all get stuck, and then we just go back to Genesis. <laughs> Does God require animal sacrifices? Leviticus says yes. But then David and the psalmist and the prophets begin to challenge this idea. David says, sacrifice and offering you do not desire. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then God speaks in Hosea and he, lets, he lays down his claim. And the thing is, at the end of the day, however we address the problem of proof texting an angry God, we must always remember that any depiction of God from whatever source is subordinate and must bow down to the revelation of God as found and seen in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the face of God. He is the icon of the divine, the word of God, the divine logos made flesh. And he is the lens through which we understand the Bible, and not only that, but our world. He becomes what we use. How can I say this? I don't want to go over it. I'm trying to like edit my notes as I go. When we want to know how to live, we look at Jesus. When we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. When scripture is in conflict with one another, different passages are clashing with one another, we let Jesus be the referee. We believe in the authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of God, and his name is Jesus. He comes to us as one of us, made flesh as a person. He comes as this and not that. And that's what we call the scandal of the particularity. Particularity. God becomes particular. He becomes a specific human being. He becomes a poor person, not a rich person. He becomes a first century Jew, not a fifth, sixth, or twentieth century Jew. He becomes this and not that. And Jesus shows up and he says, look at me. This is what God is like. And friends, that is good news. That is gospel. Because Jesus does not switch from judge to savior and back to punitive judge. Jesus did not save you one day just to condemn you the next. Jesus did not reach out his hand and then when you come up, he says, psych, gotcha. He does not do that. And this is good news because if God is like Jesus, then we have the confidence that God is deeply compassionate, scandalously graceful, and outrageously loving. And that in him, in that love, we live and we move and we have our being. And that is truly good news. On the cross, as the world was judging Christ, the religious and political powers of the world, those systems stand judged. The world is judged, Satan is defeated, and Jesus is glorified. And the cross becomes this all-encompassing revelation of who God truly is. And it turns out he's a Christ-like God, the exact representation of his likeness. God is like Jesus, and that is good news. So let me land the plane with a bit of a more practical note. What does it mean then to live in this new? Which is actually goes way before the old because it was always the plan. God is perfectly and finally fully revealed in Jesus. Jesus does not change God. Jesus reveals God to us. So the question is, if God is fully revealed as, as Jesus, what do we do with all those images of God in the Old Testament? What do we do with the 39 books of the Old Testament? How should we as Christians approach them? 
And here's the thing. We don't throw them out. We don't dismiss them. People try to do that in the first centuries of Christianity. It did not go well. What happens in light of this new revelation is that that Moses revelation of God as just the judge, the lawbringer, and this is Michael Heiser, is being beautifully eclipsed by Jesus' greater revelation of God as a loving father, a gospel giver. It's the same God, but being preached through a different lens, a restorative lens of Jesus that allows us to see Yahweh in focus in the gracious father as one whose judgments are mercy. We could go into all the story about Second Temple Judaism and how they actually saw many parts of their scripture as way more graceful than we give them credit to. But we'll save that for another day. We take the Jesus lens and we apply it to the Old Testament. We don't take the Old Testament lens and apply it to Jesus. Because here's the thing, this could go the other way around. This could easily just be, we, we take the Old Testament lens, we apply it to Jesus, and we end up with this Jesus who comes up as vengeful and a distorted image in and of itself and is in favor of war and all these things. And we've done that in the past. We allow the revelation of Jesus to overtake us and we move from there. But we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That said, there are certain things that we do need to renounce to. There are certain things that are disappearing and old and obsolete. And we usually focus on the rules. Oh, should I get a tattoo or not? Or should I wear different linens of clothing? Or should I plant different crops? And we focus on those things. But Boyd actually goes as far, and I think we need more, this more than ever. He argues that in light of the revelation of Christ in the new covenant, he says we should renounce the sin and violence manifested in the Old Testament's violence depiction of God. For when the sin of the world was nailed to the cross with Christ, the sinful conception of God as a violent warrior was included. And that's a big statement. We need to remember that throughout history, Christians have wrongly used scripture, have abused scripture to justify violence and abuse and war. The Joshua narrative was used by many colonizers and allow them to wipe out full civilizations of indigenous people and to go to bed at night with a clean conscience thinking that they were doing the Lord's work. This past week, the tragedy that we're all seeing about on social media and on my Twitter feed constantly showing me images and pictures of what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine. One could argue that it's technically Orthodox Christians killing Orthodox Christians. It's another reminder that we have failed to understand the time and place that we are living in, what it means to live in the Jesus way, what that revelation actually entails. Because one thing doesn't work with the other. He doesn't switch back. All of his ways are peace. And we sang about it this morning. We keep hearing lies. The truth is, his law is peace. His gospel is love. Jesus is not revealed to us as a warrior. That's what they all wanted him to be. That's what they were all expecting. But he does not reveal himself to us like that. Jesus does not kill his enemies in the story. He gives up his life.
And by doing so, he gives us true eternal life. And we do not need to return to the Torah because Christ is our Torah. Christ is our Sabbath. Christ is our offering. Christ is our gift. Christ is superior to all these things by divine design. And that, my friends, is good news. So let's just wrap it up. A few takeaways, uh, things to think about as we prepare for home church discussion. Understanding that transition between the old and the new enables us to discover what it means to live out the upside down kingdom of God here on earth. And by doing so, we become a new humanity in Christ. We embody an alternative Jesus-y community here on earth where we no longer need to do things in order to show our allegiance to God. We don't need to avoid wearing clothes made of different fabrics as outlined in Leviticus 19. We can shave our beards or let them grow, it's fine. We can plant two kinds of crops in the same field. Another thing that the law asks us not to do. And I know this, some of these sound ridiculous, but you know, there's legit dietary restrictions that maybe we should observe. I mean, Chuckle, maybe we should cut down the McDonald's one day. <laughs> But here's the thing, man. We don't have to. <laughs> That's the beauty of the new covenant. Yes, your body's temple. You should take care of it. But I'm not, please read it as a joke. What I'm trying to say is there are things in the old covenant that we may wish to observe, and that's fine. If you want to, that's fine. But here's the kicker. Listen. It's fine as long as they never become a substitute for the gospel of Jesus. As long as we keep it in the right perspective that Jesus is superior to all these things and that you and I have found peace with God and are in the right relationship with him, not because we follow old covenant laws, but because we follow Jesus, then sure, go crazy. But whether we observe the Sabbath or not, whether we follow dietary restrictions or not, whether we wear clothing, linen, or polyester, whatever, we are brought into relationship because Jesus showed us who God is. And it turns out God is love. And that is good news. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We didn't know this all the time, but now we do. And that is good news. And that's all I have to say today. So, amen. Uh, I'll invite the worship team to come up, and I'll invite you to prepare your heart for communion. Shell is going to come up and lead us in this time as we partake together.